When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Alexandra Ciprianovic. Alexandra is a postdoctoral research associate at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, where she works for the Scientific Computing Division on the High Velocity Artificial Intelligence Project. More broadly, she's interested in applying machine learning and data science to astronomy, cosmology, and high-energy physics. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our new website, futuratipodcast.com. Alexandra, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is for sure a very big pleasure. Oh, <laughs> Thank I'm, you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, why don't we start by hearing a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to doing the research that you do? Oh, well, <laughs> um, so uh, I live, lived until very recently in Serbia, and uh, this is where uh I got interested in astrophysics, um, and um, as I guess every small kid, uh, I was interested in mostly in dinosaurs and space, <laughs> so those two things. <laughs> um, and the more people I talk to, the more I hear the same words. But I guess people who uh, end up studying science just never get over that. Right. <laughs> so I was interested in those two things and ended up studying uh, astrophysics uh, in, in Belgrade, that is capital of Serbia. So. Uh, Serbia is a small country in, in Europe, close to Italy and Greece. And um, I did my uh, undergraduate and graduate studies over there. I worked also a couple of years at the Department of Astronomy, where I studied uh, as a researcher, and also um, at the Academy of Sciences and Arts. We have um, a mathematical institute over there. So astronomy in Serbia is studied I guess, next to computer science and, and mathematics mostly, because it kind of grew out of those two sciences. Um, so that's, I guess, my background. Uh, my PhD wasn't um, really that much about what things that I do right now. It was more theoretical, uh, high energy astrophysics. I wanted to understand how, uh, I guess, particles were created uh, after the Big Bang and after that. Um, and yeah, um, eventually I got interested more and more in, in computer science, in machine learning, and I transitioned more into doing something in between astrophysics and computing. My interests now are kind of in both fields, <laughs> and I do things that are related to machine learning um, and how to help astronomers and astrophysicists uh, work um, on those big data sets that we have from telescopes right. using machine learning. 
Oh, that's fascinating. So I was wondering if we, we could maybe start with a couple of broad overview questions. So mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about like just the concepts involved in astrophysics, like, like what's sort of the, the basic ideas that a person should know from astrophysics to at least be conversant in a discussion between some professionals? Uh, Wow. Well, um, that is not a very easy question to to answer. There are a lot of things. Um, But I think that uh, once people start thinking about astrophysics, um, we should, I guess, be aware that um, everything that we see, everything that we know about, all of the matter and energy, understanding how that came to be, where we come from, why there is everything around us and not nothing, uh, really came from, uh, you know, from space and from at least what we know now uh, from Big Bang and everything that happened after that. So the creation of galaxies, of of stars uh, and big structures uh, called large scale structures in the universe, everything uh, really is governed uh, by you know gravity and other uh, forces uh, in physics, and astrophysicists really study all of that. We study the same things that physicists here on Earth study, uh, just applied to space, applied to larger lengths, huge masses, and very high energies. Some things that we cannot achieve here at that uh, on Earth. Um, so you know when when you think about astrophysicists. Um, you basically, you know, you you talk to a physicist, you're talking to physicists, but uh, just a person who, I guess, looks more into the past and how we came to be here and what's going on on large scales. So it's like archaeology for stars, basically. So you did you did kind of end up <laughs> exactly. in, in dinosaurs in space. Um, exactly. How, how would an astrophysicist be different from an astronomer? Uh, so I guess astronomers are, uh, you know, people who first were interested in stars. So they couldn't understand the physical processes, maybe that, uh, you know, produce all of that that they see in first without telescopes. And after that, once we built telescopes with telescopes, they measured uh, the behavior of these objects, how they move around. Um, uh, Do they see some regularities or some weird things? Um, and then later on, as, as uh, people, I guess, learned more physics and understood physical processes, and also very importantly understood that the same principles also govern the cosmos and not only things here on Earth, then they could apply the physical knowledge to the processes they see in, in space and really try to understand the physics of, of all of the things that we see around ourselves. So it's just like an astronomer who's better at math. <laughs> well, both astronomers and astrophysicists have to be really good at math. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what what about a, a cosmologist? Like how would you distinguish yourself from a cosmologist? Um, so astrophysicists, they study particular objects. So stars, galaxies, groups of galaxies, and they try to understand different processes happening uh, in all of these objects that we have around us. But cosmologists, they they try to understand the universe as a whole. So how, you know, where did it start from? How did it evolve? How did we get to where we are today? Is it expanding or not expanding? What forces govern this expansion? Uh, What, you know, 
type of batter is inside and and how does that influence the whole evolution of the space around us so they they're trying to really understand the big picture and answer big questions like yeah why are we here i see okay <laughs> yeah it sort of shades over into philosophy if you go back far enough a little bit yeah <laughs> So in doing research for this interview, I was reading your thesis. Uh, it's what it, contributions of galaxies and galaxy clusters to the diffuse gamma ray background, uh, which was, you know, delightful reading. And first of all, a, a bunch of it's written in Serbian. So I, I had to start by learning Serbian. Um, <laughs> but then once I had that down, this line jumped out at me and, and you wrote that for the first time, we include the change of gamma ray production with time through the history of the universe that reflects the evolution of accretion shocks, which appear during large scale structure formation. And I, I just I occasionally find myself flabbergasted that we know as much as we know about the universe and the large scale structure of matter and its distribution. And I was wondering if you could just give sort of a layman's overview of the evidentiary, evidentiary basis for that. Like, how the hell is it that we know so much about all these things that are so far away and so massive? I'm just guessing that there's a like a lot of inference involved, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am also flabbergasted by the things that we know, <laughs> definitely. And, you know, the more you, you study, the more, you know, flabbergasted you are, I guess. Um, so primarily, uh, we know all of these things because uh, we are building better and better telescopes. Um, so, I mean, nothing would happen, of course, without theorists imagining all of these things. But uh, finally, when it comes to space, um, many of the theories just seem very crazy and people don't like to believe in them until we get really good proofs or multiple proofs. And um, <clears throat> one of the things, um, I guess, that is helping us understand how these large scale structures form is basically uh, the fact that we have very good telescopes in different wavelengths today, uh, something called uh, you know, big astronomical surveys, for example. And these surveys really, they observe the whole sky and they can see very, very faint objects. And you know, the fainter the objects that we can see, the more distant objects and older objects we can see. And um, once we had good enough telescopes, for example, we could see that all of the objects are really not very uniformly distributed. I mean, they are uniformly distributed, but they are kind of producing these clumps um, and they uh, are kind of distributed in this um, different types of filaments and there are voids in between. So um, this is of course something that we learned is because of course of gravity and all of the matter uh, getting closer and closer together because uh, because of gravity. Um, and on larger scales, all of the galaxies uh, are grouped together in galaxy clusters. And these galaxy clusters are then grouped together into these filaments. Um, this is definitely one of the reasons that it's this has made possible our at least understanding of that is because we have telescopes in orbit and in, uh, on Earth, both of these in different wavelengths. So for example, you've mentioned in my, my thesis um, uh, that uh, I mentioned some gamma rays. So I, I during that time, I used some data, data from gamma ray telescopes. And here on Earth, we have you know, telescopes that show us visible light. But all of these information we, are just like tiny puzzles that we uh, combine together to really learn about these objects. So what, what is that 
process look like? You're, you're trying to assemble the puzzle piece from all these different parts of the data set. Um, walk me through what your basic workflow is like. Uh, so there are a lot of people involved in this, definitely. So um, I myself, I'm, I consider myself more or less an, the end user. So we have, you know, different collaborations. So for example, um, there is a collaboration around the Fermi gamma ray space telescope. So, so that's the one that I've been using in my, in my thesis. Uh, and all these people uh, observe the sky with this telescope. And, and for a very long time, for a couple of years, they have to uh, reduce this data and understand it and, you know, package it very well, clean it. And then uh, the other scientists who are uh, the end users can really uh, use the clean data set without all of the other things that maybe we don't care about in these observations. And then you have many collaborations, many different telescopes doing the same thing, observing the night sky for years and, and getting better and better precise data that they will clean and make you know, nice and presentable for every other user to use. Uh, until now, I've been mostly uh, involved in just using the data, not cleaning it. Uh, but now, since uh, I moved here, for example, at Fermilab, where I work now here in the suburbs of Chicago, I, um, I'm witnessing more and more the whole process of um, how the whole you know, workflow uh, looks like, how the observations are done, how the data reduction is done, how to store it, how to move it. All these are very big data problems. And, and Fermilab is luckily uh, a, a premier national lab involved in many big collaborations. So now I have um, a more uh, like a front row experience of how these things uh, are, doing, are done. And then, like, where do you come in in that process? Because one thing I've mused before is that at a certain level of abstraction, all data problems end up kind of looking the same. Like, it's, <laughs> it's probably a CSV, you know, sitting on S3 somewhere, and you're pulling it down into pandas. So uh, when you work with this data, like, it's, it's clean, presumably. And, like, what are the tools you use for that? Um, so me personally, when I uh, use the data, I usually, until at least until now, I, I've been using clean data, at least when it's observed. Um, what I do, I, I like working mostly with images because I like deep learning right. and that's what I currently do. Um, so it, it's not that hard to get the data. The, the databases are very well organized. You have a lot of astronomers you can talk to and computer scientists uh, who, who kind of help you through the whole process. Um, you have to know what you're looking for, <laughs> definitely right. what type of objects. Because um, in astronom astronomical data, um, you have a lot of data, but really uh, you don't have, like if you want to do some kind of machine learning, for example, with them, uh, you don't have, you know, clear labels. You have to make them very often because especially if it's new data, it's not the same like working with, uh, you know, cats and dogs. Right. Um, so there is a lot of like... We have to figure out how to do these things. Uh, it, how to figure out which objects we want? Uh, are we, you know, correct about how we classify the object that we're observing? Um, and uh, how to get get the data that we need for a particular physics study? Um, but other than that, um, it's not it's not that hard. The bigger problem have people who have to clean the data. So sometimes the telescope doesn't work. 
you have a very bad day. Right. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, part of the telescope, like one part of the camera doesn't work or a couple of pixels. And for some studies, that is a huge problem. Um, so there are people who have to, you know, go through the data, understand which things that can be used, which cannot be used. And uh, that is, for example, one of the problems that I, I hope that one day uh, we can automate with machine learning because we have huge data sets now, but in a couple of years, we'll have uh, vastly larger data sets that we have to go through. And there's a lot of, you know, those pre-processing steps that we have to go through until the science can be done. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I hope machine learning will help us with, for example. Well, there's also the generation of the tags. So that's probably enormously manual at this point as well, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Especially when you have... For example, some objects that you couldn't observe before. You you build a new telescope that has better resolution. And for the first time, you see, for example, some very faint objects like low surface brightness galaxies, for example. These galaxies are have brightnesses lower than the night sky. So we couldn't observe them before. Right. So now somebody has to go through all of the data and find candidates for these objects and actually look at all of the images, classify them as as potential candidate for, for a low server brightness galaxy, for example. Um, so that is very tedious, very slow. Um, but um, for example, me and a couple of, uh, of my coworkers have been working on doing this more, you know, automated with deep learning and it's showing a lot of promise. So I'm hoping that a lot of other tasks like these can be, you know, vastly improved and, and faster. Um, very soon because we'll need them to be faster. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Uh, well, so let's just talk about that then. So I, I guess you came to my attention because you said at the intersection of astrophysics and deep learning. So what are the deep learning approaches that you're using to process these data? And what are the advancements you hope to make in the future? Mm -hmm. um, so my like current interests have like a couple of different fronts. Um, I guess to continue from what I've previously mentioned, uh, the low server brightness galaxies um, and, and, you know, objects similar to these. Um, we, for example, use uh, MASCAR CNNs, so object, uh, object detection algorithms. So the same things that, you know, self-driving cars use to detect trees, pedestrians, etc. Um, we are using the same things to train the network to recognize the, the objects that we care about from some, for example, similar looking, but uh, still a nuisance type of objects uh, and find them. Uh, and that is also, I think, going to be very useful for, uh, for finding uh, weird phenomena maybe, uh, or transient phenomena where you have something, you know, weird happening and you really need to, for example, react very quickly. That does happen in astronomy, even though most of the things last millions of years. Some things don't. Some things last, uh, you know, a couple of minutes, a couple of weeks. And sometimes you really need to react really quickly to send like alerts to other observatories and so that you can observe this object, for example, uh, on a different wavelength. Um, and um, those are the things that I think machine learning at some point will will prove very useful as a as a tool. 
What what are what are transient phenomena in astrophysics? I'm just I ha- I'm having a hard time imagining anything that lasts two weeks in astrophysics. Oh, but it does. <laughs> so yes, so one of the very important transient phenomena uh, are uh, explosions of stars, for example, so supernovae. Uh, so when the star is like at the end of its like fusion cycle, uh, fusing you know he- hydrogen into helium, uh, and all the way to to iron. Um, everything after that, nothing after that really can be created through this process. And stars explode after that, uh, creating all of the other elements that you have in, you know, in the periodic table. And so these explosions are, of course, very you know, quick processes. And the way the light changes uh, during the explosion also changes really quickly. So uh, to really understand, I mean, we already know quite a lot about these processes, but still it's very crucial when we want to observe them that we catch the whole process. So as soon as it explodes, you observe it for you know, a couple of weeks to see how the light changes and decreases, uh, just, just to see how strong it was, what type of explosion it was. Uh, and you, know, you can learn a lot of other things about the object also. So did I did I hear you to say that the the heaviest element that can be formed in nuclear fusion in a star is iron? Yes. Why is yes. that? Just that's the way it works out. <laughs> that's the way it works out. So yeah, so yeah, the 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 temperature and all of the the pressure inside the star uh, uh, is contrasted also with gravity, and it just turns out that the the all of the things that you have inside a star can really just make everything up to that element and for everything above that you need uh, you need more energy um and so that happens only when the star explodes um and it seems very strange and bizarre but all of this the universe is very vast and there are so many stars and so many stars exploded until now so that's why even on earth you have a lot of uranium and you know other heavy elements and it's very interesting to to just try to understand the fact that all of these things just came from these explosions of stars, nothing else. Yeah, that's, that's the only way remarkable. to produce. Um, <laughs> so, so when they explode, I mean, it, I, I don't know, I, I, maybe I just have a very naive model of star explosion. It's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but it, it, how is it that you get all the, all the other elements in the periodic table of the elements? It seems like the energy would be fairly uniform throughout the explosion and you would tend to get, you know, a, a relatively small constellation of elements, or is that not true? Uh, well, I mean, it's just a, a very huge burst of energy. And in this process, you have, this is a very rapid process, but also just, I mean, I'm not a nuclear physicist, so <laughs> I, I, I never worked on like exact models of how this is done. But in the, because you have so much energy and because not all of these uh, elements are stable, sometimes you can create a, a very, uh, you know, large element that also decays into everything that's, that's smaller than that. Uh, so basically it's just a, combination of all of these things uh, and producing all kinds of elements and then decaying or fusing into other elements. And just in the end, you end up with everything <laughs> that we know. That's amazing. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so with these, with these technologies, you, you said they're CNNs, right? So the convolutional yes. neural networks is, is predominantly what you're using. What are some of the major challenges in deploying that technology? I mean, is, is it mm-hmm. mostly a matter of training? Is it just the case that astrophysicists generally don't really know how to work with them? What, what would it take to kind of scale that up a lot? Uh, so there are a couple of challenges. Uh, so one 
definitely a good thing would be uh, if uh, just we had more uh, manpower and especially more computer scientists who who um, just you know devoted all of their uh, their uh, studies to deep learning and and advancing these methods um, i mean even now even with with what we have the number of of papers uh, that are published every day in in astrophysics and in physics in general using some kind of machine learning method is generally like exponentially growing so we are using it more and more definitely um so you know having more more people getting involved also people who just study computer science will definitely help but even you know uh, if we put that aside, of course, more money and more manpower is always a good thing. Um, there are challenges in in how you apply methods in, in science. So first challenge is that the data is never uh, very nice and clean. And, and um, it doesn't look like, as I said, cats and dogs and cars and right. trees. It just, in astronomy, it's it's often very noisy, uh, very, the signal is very faint. So things, uh, look just different. You is that just because the granularity of the image isn't very good? Cause it's so far away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, some, some images are of course really good, but overall the objects are, you know, they don't have nice, precise edges they're not clear there are um you have if you're studying a galaxy there's a bunch of other things in the same image other stars other galaxies overlapping and the better the telescope that we have the more objects will will see so more objects will be overlapping with other objects in our images so it's going to get harder and harder to like distinguish individual things in, in, in images. So that's one of the things that people are currently like working on how to do, to work on this problem. The other problem, uh, which isn't very big problem in my opinion, and something that I, I care about and I study currently, and that is um, how to like bridge between different data sets. So in astronomy, you know, deep learning, no deep learning. It's always useful to to combine multiple data sets, whether that is from two different telescopes or that is from a simulation, which we use a lot. So we simulate some physical processes and observations. Uh, If we can use deep learning with both data sets at the same time, uh, we will, you know, learn from the differences, from similarities, and uh, that is not easy to do. <laughs> so sometimes we need um, we need to, for example, simulate something, and we simulate a bunch of galaxies doing something. And when we have a simulation, it's super easy because you know what you're simulating. You have the labels, so it's very useful to start from from the data set that you know, <laughs> where you are. If you're working with images, you have all of the things that you care about labeled. And we can train on that, but we want to, of course, apply it to the real galaxies, and they're never going to be exactly the same, like the simulated ones. And of course, the performance of the model will drop. So we need to uh, basically develop methods that are going to allow us to kind of start from the simulations, but really have something that works on real data, especially if we want to use models in real time to help us find something, for example, in the new data. so these methods um, are, uh, for example, called domain adaptation, and I've seen them being used a lot for, you know, self-driving cars. You 
want to be able to drive a car in LA, but also in Chicago that looks differently. And so these type of problems I want to kind of apply to astronomy also. Well, could you talk to me a little bit about domain adaptation? Because I'm a machine learning engineer, but I've never really worked on those kinds of problems before. So I actually don't know much about it. So what does it look like when you train a model that also generalizes well to other environments it's never seen before? Mm-hmm. Um, so the methods that uh, I try to use, uh, they basically um, allow you to uh, have one data set that is labeled and a similar data set that is not labeled, but is the only thing that a model will know, for example, is that it's from a different data set, a different data domain. And the domain adaptation really allows you to build the model during training so that it only uses domain invariant features. So only the features that it can find from both data sets at the same time. And sometimes, of course, these are not maybe going to be the most useful and most obvious and easy features for for one of the domains, but you don't care about that. You just want the neural network to find something that is common in both data sets. Because without that, even the simplest, um, simplest examples that I've tried without domain adaptation just don't work, (laughs) don't work. So I train on, for example, I, I create galaxies uh, and I train on them. I create simulated galaxies, yeah. <laughs> and then I just <laughs> I create, and then I just add the noise. So it's the same data set, just add a little bit of noise, and the model doesn't work at all. Um, so this is definitely going to be it's crucial, even now. But for in the future, I think that if we want to use the main adaptation, uh, I mean, in any kind of application in astrophysics, I think we'll need to do something like that. Yeah. So it strikes me that that's sort of a broader variant on the concept of uh, regularization. So you're preventing the model from overfitting by forcing it to find more robust abstractions that will generalize across data sets that otherwise don't bear that much resemblance to each other. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And especially if you have a big model, uh, which I I don't like using all the time, but for example, if you use one of the standard ones, so use use your ResNet, for example. Uh, what I've noticed uh, is that um, when I use domain adaptation, not only it allows me to work in both data sets, but it also helps me increase the accuracy even on the, the easy data set that I have where I have labels for, because it's, yeah, it's very easily starts overfitting, so I have to stop the training. Right. Uh, with domain adaptation, that doesn't happen. So it's it's helpful actually for for both data sets, for the new one where you don't know the labels, but also for the old one where you have the labels. I got you. And w- when we're talking about data sets, I'm sort of imagining images. That's that's what <laughs> we've been talking about so far. But what what are some other uh, data points that you use? Uh, so yeah, I, I've been mostly talking about images because that's what I mostly use. Uh, but a lot of astronomers don't use images. They have um, either you know data, there's just numbers that show you some you know specific physical parameters about the objects, and they in that case use you know not deep learning that works with images, not CNNs, but just regular uh, machine learning algorithms that work with numbers, um, and sometimes. You also, for example, don't have an image, but you have maybe a spectrum. So it's like a 2D um, data (laughs) um, where you just have um, a spectrum that can, you know, can be 
work with as an image or as a set of numbers. And people do both things. Uh, they, you know, find sometimes find uh, interesting features in these spectra, even if they just look at them as images, you know, work with them as CNNs. This is also interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. So what are some of the like mysteries that you're you're working on now, like the astrophysical problems that you're trying to solve? Um, so one thing, uh, that I'm really interested, uh, are galaxy mergers. So, uh, I use mostly deep learning to try to, uh, kind of understand it better. Um, but the reason why I'm interested in galaxy mergers is that, um, these are extremely slow processes. So galaxies very often actually merge, but just this lasts for millions of years. So for example, even Andromeda galaxy that is very close to Milky Way, it is, you know, going towards us and eventually will merge or at least, you know, go very near um, Andromeda galaxy. And uh, galaxy mergers are kind of a, a crucial thing to understand if you want to understand like the evolution of matter in the universe. Because we have different types of galaxies. Perhaps you've heard, you know, about spiral galaxies or elliptical galaxies, irregulars. And uh, we believe that uh, one of the reasons why we have different types of galaxies is because of mergers. So depending on how the two galaxies will merge and what are their masses and how they approach each other, uh, one of the reasons why uh, galaxy mergers are very important for astrophysicists is that um, even though these are processes that you know last for millions of years, uh, we now believe that if, depending on which type of, of galaxies are going to collide and how they approach each other, basically uh, you can get as the end result from this process different types of galaxies. So you know, you've probably heard that we have spiral galaxies, we have ellipticals and irregulars. And uh, probably the reason why we have that is because of galaxy mergers. Uh, the tricky part is that these are very long processes, as I said. So you cannot observe to a pair of galaxies right. colliding. Uh, so you have to have really build, build big data sets uh, of galaxy mergers in different stages. Uh, and that is not easy. Um, it's not easy even to recognize if something is really a merger in observations, for example. So sometimes you will have galaxies that look like they're very close to each other, but they're never nowhere near each other. They're just looking like they're very close because right. we just have, you know. Um, and so really finding a lot of examples that are trustworthy, understanding, you know, which objects are really merging and combining that with simulations of, of galaxy mergers um, and um, the properties that we can learn from this simulation, we can see the end results, we can, you know, compare them to what we observe um, and really learn about this process. And I'm fascinated about that. You know, this is, I'm always, I have always been very interested in um, the formation of structures that we see in the universe at different scales. Uh, you know, ever since I started, started uh, working as an astrophysicist, I cared about this. And so, you know, now I study galaxy mergers as, again, a process that is very important for structure formation. When you, when you put these models together and you go out and you find galactic merger, I mean, are you just trying to find two galaxies that are currently in the process of merging? 
I mean, because you said it's kind of hard to tell, right? So presumably there, there's got to be a finite number of uh, galactic mergers that are currently ongoing. So like, what, what's the ratio of gathering the empirical evidence versus building these rather speculative models that allow you to get purchase on this problem? So there are a lot of mergers in our data. The problem is that you have to gather more evidence for each merger to be sure that they are a merger. So if you just have uh, a telescope that observes you know, in optical light, you will not be sure if that's the case or not. Um, the one of the reasons uh, is just because you only have the light and you don't, uh, you know, you don't know how they're really moving. To know how galaxies really, you know, behave and how they're moving, you need to uh, get their spectrum, for example. So in the spectra of galaxies, you really have. So the spectrum of a galaxy is uh, shows you how the light at different energies or different wavelengths is distributed, and. In these spectra, you have some emission lines and some absorption lines from elements. Um, and these lines really tell us uh, what kind of composition, like chemical composition it is uh, in, you know, in the galaxies. And we know exactly how each element really behaves. We can experimentally measure that on Earth. So we look for the same signatures in, in galaxy spectra. And um, when galaxies move, so it's the same like when the car moves towards you. you it will change the, the pitch of the sound that it's making. And the same, we're looking at the same signatures in, in the spectra of galaxies. So you, you look at how these, um, how these emission and absorption lines move, basically. And this movement will tell you, is the galaxy moving towards you or, or from you and how fast? And basically, uh, by looking at pairs of galaxies and looking how they move from the spectra, you can actually get the velocities and you know which directions they have. And then, and only then, you can know that they really are interacting. Uh, so that is slow and and uh, you know hard to do. You have to have a good candidate then have time on the telescope that has a spectrograph, then observe that. <laughs> so that's very tough. So we're hoping we're hoping that um, you know maybe with machine learning we can you know extract more information from images uh, by having a very trustworthy data set um, that maybe has more information from from different sites. Learn something how to like really understand what the merger is, what's a fake merger, what's a real merger, and then maybe and then maybe just find new candidates. That would be very helpful for, for future studies. Okay. And then what is it that draws you to this problem? Like, like what are the, the questions you're hoping to answer? Because I mean, it sounds like just a really, really cool thing to study, but naively I'm just sort of imagining, well, the galaxies kind of merge and some stars crash into each other and there's a bunch of elements formed and, and um, ejected, but it's not obvious to me what the, the great scientific mystery is there. Uh, well, I, I I believe that the big mystery that uh, we are trying to solve is the mystery of how galaxies, you know, came to be. How is it that uh, the Milky Way came to be the way it is now, and that in the end, you know, we could be, you know, created here and living here? So how do we get to the, uh, you know, physical? Um, 
state that our galaxy has. Um, so that is one of the things that uh, definitely uh, is, you know, part of the process of understanding galaxy formation and galaxy evolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, finally, um, you know, understanding how stars form, because, for example, star formation is not the same in all of the galaxies. Uh, and as we mentioned already, stars are crucial for producing elements, very heavy elements. Right. So um, the number of stars that is born in each galaxy is not the same. And for example, we see that some galaxies have a lot of new star formation, a lot of young stars, and some don't. And uh, we actually believe, again, that galaxy mergers are to blame. So depending on whether the, the galaxy had a merger and how far in the past, it will either have a lot of stars or it will not have a lot of stars. Um, and so again, galaxy mergers really are the creators also of stars. And stars are, you know, finally the creators of the elements that we have around us. And, uh, you know, the possibility of creating life in the end. So is it just a matter of a galaxy that is very old and has experienced no mergers recently, eventually just runs out of its stars. Eventually they just run out of their fusion cycle, they explode, and that's kind of the end of it. And if there's no other inputs, if they don't merge with anything else, then there's no engine by which more stars could form. Is that, is that basically right? Yes, but um, I can't say that we really have a complete consensus of like whether mergers help create or 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 destroy star formation rate in galaxies. So um, sometimes um, perhaps a merger can be the reason why uh, you know the galaxy stops forming stars. Uh, but then again, that's because we don't fully understand the whole process. And and uh, yeah, while well, studying galaxy mergers will hopefully eventually, you know, make us certain of how it actually influences the whole thing. Um, but yeah, most of the time you will have a very old galaxy, as you said, uh, that either didn't have a merger or had it very long time ago at that. And then it has a lot of stars that are just slowly quenching and dying. <laughs> why why yeah. would a galaxy merger stop star formation? Um, I would like to have a good answer to that. What makes anybody think that it does, right? Because I mean, like, like I said, and, and this is just me responding as you're talking. I'm, I'm just thinking like, well, there's things crashing into each other. That's new matter. Maybe it could accrete around a common gravitational sink, something like that. But I, I have no idea how it is that a merger of two galaxies would stop star formation. The merger can... Uh, Really, it, it moves the, the gas around. It moves, um, you know, all of the matter inside around. Uh, and so also we have to, you know, take into the consideration that maybe some galaxies, I mean, probably have dark matter around them uh, that we also hope to understand better through these processes again. Um, and um, the way these all of these you know different particles and different types of matter interact will you know eventually either uh, you know help things clump and and heat up and increase the star formation rate or maybe it won't. Um, I think that we just to be completely sure we have to have 
just more data and more studies and more also like people who are doing simulations to really, you know, better understand the whole process. I don't have a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> that why that's that's why this is a a thing that we like to study to yeah, understand. Yeah, well, there's, we there's so much for you to do, right? Because <laughs> because we're not really sure what what, what this uh, what this means or how it works. So, um, to what extent does your work interface with dark matter? So, this is something I don't understand very well. I hear it kind of spoken about a lot, and I've just always kind of wanted to pick the brain of an actual scientist who studies the skies. So, could you shed some light on dark matter for me? Um, so my, uh, work, uh, is, you know, mostly related to the visible matter. Uh, but as I said, um, you know, each galaxy has, at least we assume has a lot of dark matter around it. So around every galaxy, you have like a halo of dark matter. We still don't know what that is. And there are a lot of, uh, people, uh, at Fermilab, both, theorists and experimentalists trying to figure out what dark matter could be. Um, is it a you know special type of particle that's maybe interacting, you know, in some way with the regular matter and with many other ways it doesn't interact? Um, and the reason why we believe, and we, you know, have these observations for a very long time now, why we believe that there's dark matter around galaxies is that, uh, if you observe a spiral galaxy, you know, moving around and you measure the velocities of, of different data of different points in the in the galaxy, uh, some of the, you know, some of the velocities as you go further away from the center are just too large. So if um, there is nothing holding, no, no additional matter holding gravitationally uh, all of this matter, the galaxy that is rotating with that speed would just you know, disintegrate like things here on Earth when you spin them. Um, so when you know, people observe this for the first time, they measure these velocities, they saw that uh, they're just weirdly high, that there must be something else that we don't see that's holding it. Um, and we still don't know what it is. <laughs> People are, have been, you know, trying to figure this out for a very long time. Um, but yeah, a lot of, uh, observations from, you know, different telescopes might help us do that, um, to just observe the things that we can, uh, see how they, you know, move, how they interact to better understand, uh, the things that we don't see. Um, and also some people who are just theoretically trying to figure out what kind of particle is that, what can be a particle that doesn't interact with the regular matter. So it's, it's a question of the velocities being much too high and our, our belief that if there were nothing else acting on, on these galaxies, then the stars would fly away, right? So if I've got beads on a string and I start spinning it at a certain velocity, they all come off. And if they don't, you assume there's something else operative, right? Yes. So why, why couldn't it be something like a, a black hole or like, like, like why stipulate this, you know, non-baryonic particle that doesn't interact with things in weird ways and isn't photonic. And it just, it seems like an awful lot to add to it. Uh, and I mean, I, the people working on this are far smarter than me. So I'm sure if there were a simpler explanation, they would have come up with it by now, but it, it seems a lot like epicycles. Um, so especially theoretical particle physics, physicists are also, I think a lot smarter than me. So <laughs> 
definitely uh, the the detailed answer would be something that they would give you. Um, one thing that I can say is that um, at least on, on this example of velocities of, of galaxies, um, you need a lot more mass to to hold all of this thing, uh, all of the matter that you do see just inside a galaxy. Um, and just having a black hole isn't enough. So this is not something that could be, you know, helpful enough, even though we know that in the center of most galaxies, you just have a supermassive black hole. Um, but that's not enough. Um, one reason um, why I think people believe that it might be some kind of new particle is that everything that we do see and you know, having our experiments on Earth and we observe, most of the things that we, we understand really fit very well in like the whole standard model of particles that we know and how they interact and all of the forces uh, that uh, they interact with. But somehow some observations like these don't just, they don't fit the picture. You just have to have something additional. Yeah, even even on large scales, uh, people who um, who create um, you know simulations of how the cosmos evolves, like so from the Big Bang to today to like having these filaments that I talked about, large scale structures. Um, if they put in, they imagine different type of dark matter particles and you know different types of pot potential forces they can you know interact with. Um, they end up with a different looking universe. I see. So they can really test their hypothesis in a simulations in a simulation to see if uh, if their hypothesis for a particular type of of, of uh, dark matter really works. Does, do we observe the universe that looks like that or it doesn't? So that might be part of the answer to the next question I have is that why why do we stipulate that dark matter forms halos around galaxies? Why wouldn't it? suffuse the galaxy or just be evenly distributed throughout the universe? Is it just because, well, if you do that, then you don't get, it has no explanatory power at that point. I guess people imagined that there must be something else that maybe also, you know, gravitationally is bound. And if it interacts gravitationally with the regular matter, that would, you know, help it to, to hold together during rotation. So if it does interact gravitationally, it's, you know, it should interact with itself too. So it would form like a cloud, uh, for example, around the galaxy, like a bubble that the vis visible matter is just located inside. Um, so yeah, I think that just because we we hope that we understand at least, you know, substantial amount of physics, we, we don't want to invent too many new things. And I think that the things that we do know kind of maybe logically lead to a, a, a halo of dark matter. I see. Well, that's very interesting. Now, this is all stuff I'd never really heard of or, or thought much about. So I guess in, in the 10 minutes we have left, would you mind telling me a little bit about the Deep Skies project that you're a part of? Yes. So uh, Deep Skies Lab is an awesome community uh, that I've joined a couple of years back. Uh, it's a community that, uh, you know, gathers uh, astrophysicists who really care about uh, implementing and developing machine learning and deep learning methods uh, for use in, in astrophysics and in sciences. Um, it is a community that 
has a lot of astrophysicists from around the world, not only from US, uh, but also has people who are, you know, non-astro, maybe regular physicists or even computer scientists who are interested, you know, in helping us out or, you know, generally are interested in astrophysics. Uh, people who are scientists that, but moved to industry and now maybe know a little bit more about, you know, different applications and they have different ideas. Uh, scientists who are not physicists, you know, have, you know, people from geology or medicine, biology, and all of these people are really using machine learning a lot. So it's a really cool community where you can, I learned a lot from all of them. You can learn a lot quickly. You can um, join different projects, help out. We have, you know, journal clubs, educational clubs, and, um, you know, all kinds of uh, things that can really help us all do science faster. We have students, we have even some high school students, not only like undergraduates and graduates. So this is a really, cool welcoming community that really is focused on advancing uh, deep learning and machine learning for sciences. Are any of the data sets open source? Is that the sort of thing I could pull and, and run some analyses on? Yes. Good thing that, uh, and at the Astro community generally, a good thing about, uh, about Astro community is that uh, many data sets are very public. Uh, so um, many clean data sets, are public and compared to maybe some other physics experiments um, where things are either not always public or they get public later on, uh, astronomy community was always very open to, to publicly, uh, you know, allowing people to access the data sets. Not everything, but a lot. It's probably because we have so much of it. Right. <laughs> so, so that there's definitely not enough people who can, you know, handle all of the data and we're just going to have more. So yes, if uh, if people are outside of Astro and are interested in helping out, there's definitely always uh, you know things uh, to do, uh, data sets to to access, and finally, if uh, somebody wants to join Deep Skies and he's not a scientist, it's you know free to apply and join and you know talk to us. We can you know help you get access to different things. Well, that's a remarkable effort. Um... I asked a version of this question earlier, um, but I kind of want to step back a little bit and just inquire as to is there, are there, are there like one or two questions that you would like to see answered in your lifetime that, that if, that if you worked on and there was a solution or a breakthrough, you would die happy someday, or is there anything like that for you? Well, um, there are a couple, um, I would really like to have, um, you know, better sense of what dark matter is. I would like to have experiments show us what type of, uh, hopefully, a particle or maybe something else it is. Um, I would really like to also understand dark energy, um, where it's just as weird yeah. <laughs> as dark matter. Uh, and, you know, we currently think that the dark energy is like 70% of the whole thing in the universe, whole, whole energy and matter. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that is, those are the questions that will be answered, uh, you know, in the next few decades while I live, but I would certainly be happy uh, if at least part of it is, is you know, answered. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful answer and a wonderful set of goals. And thank you so much for talking this over with me today. Thank you so much for reminding me. This was really a pleasure. Thank you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.